welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. I should I should explain by the way before we get recording in earnest that I've got a terrible streaming cold. I have a minor cold, but I, it's not too noisy at the at the moment. But uh, you know you sound okay. You sound you have gravitas. Ah, good, excellent. <laughs> All right. So um, this is the first. You're, I think you're you're well. You you definitely are our first guest ever, Eric. So thanks for um, accepting the invitation. You know, of all possible guests, this pod this podcast uh, could start with. I mean, you're the man, so we're very happy to you're have the, you with the, us. You're the uh, the the godfather of weird studies, which doesn't really <laughs> exist, but you're the godfather of it. No, and it should it shouldn't really exist. It should only weirdly exist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> In a liminal state. But just uh, to give people who might not know you uh, just a quick intro. Um, Eric Davis is uh, an author, journalist, thinker, scholar. Uh, Technosis is probably the book that he's most, uh, you know, known for. Um, an, an amazing excellent thirty-three and a third book on Led Zeppelin four. Right, and uh, and a, a collection of essays. Right, Nomad Codes. Um, yeah. So all these. Uh, I mean, for me, just speaking personally, uh, Eric's work has really kind of shaped my uh mature i guess uh, you know conception of, of various uh topics and ideas that we're going to be discussing today um so it's it's a really like uh, an honor to have him with us today so thanks for for coming eric absolutely i mean i, I admire both of you, your guys's work a lot and the when i heard about the podcast i was incredibly excited because there there is a a weird ground swell you know that we can we can point out a few other things that have been, you know, coming up. Mark Fisher's, uh, you know, the late Mark Fisher's, uh, one of, I think his last book, um, and yeah. uh, The Weird and the Eerie, and it's great stuff. And uh, there's something here. And uh, and so I, I was really psyched to see that you guys are doing this podcast. And, um, you know, it's been, it's, I've been thinking about this, this topic a lot and even thinking about what does it mean to sort of identify it? Are, are we, do, do we kill it by naming it? Is it already, you know, it's got this sort of nameless named quality to it. So I couldn't think of uh, two guys that'd be more fun to, to hash this out with. So great. Oh, thanks. So um, let me start with a question. Let's just start with technosis because, and the reason I want to start there is that uh, I think this year's the 20th anniversary, right, of the book. It's been 20 years since it was published. Like time really flies because I remember it just it doesn't seem that long ago that I got my copy and um, was just like spellbound from from page one. And uh, but I, well, I'm curious to know, Eric, like how the scene has changed since then. Like when you wrote this book, um, I guess in some ways, the like how has has the weird gotten weirder or less weird since you wrote Technosis? You know, as it pertains as it pertains to this particular topic. Yeah, that's a good way to frame it because you can have a whole conversation about how internet cultures change and this and that. 
uh, which is, a, you know, re- relevant, but maybe a little bit off from this core question uh, of the weird. I was always interested in, in subcultures and particularly religious or mystical ecstatic subcultures. And when I started to notice that there was this curious crossover with technology, you know, initially kind of in the contemporary moment of the beginnings of the kind of mass internet and the first wave of discussions around virtual reality uh, and the sort of crossover between psychedelic culture and an emerging technoculture and the, and the explosion of, of subcultures online back in, back in the day, as they say, you know, I, I started to track this stuff and then I, and then I kind of went backwards and kind of go, well, how far back can we take this stuff? And I found a lot of historical precedents for this curious uh, crossover. And, you know, to me, the, the 90s remain a, a, a period that's, that's unorganized in our, in our kind of cultural memory, uh, rather mm. than disorganized. That there's a, there, were, there were a lot of positive and interesting features about it that, you know, we can put in context and recognize that, you know, they were riding a certain kind of, you know, neoliberal boom. And, you know, it was, it was always, you know, the, the collapse was always in the cards. Uh, but nonetheless, along the way, there really was a, a period, particularly in the early 90s, when there was just an extraordinary fertility, uh, not just within subcultures, but be- more, even more between them. Uh, and there was a kind of mm. mutant, cut-up, uh, you know, mixology of ideas and practices and technologies, archaic and otherwise, um, that was incredibly exciting to be around, be within, and be enjoying, be writing about at that time. So technosis, in, in a way, though it's all about technology, also comes out of a of a broader enthusiasm and uh, and you know sort of personal energization by these kind of mutant subcultures, which were you know that's partly what we. What we what we recognize when we recognize the weird, there's usually something a little mutant about it. Like it's not just the classic. Uh, there's some kind of twist or turn or perversion or unexpected juxtaposition, and just the conditions of the '90s, sort of just at the edge of moving into the digital, when you know samplers were all over the place. So we had the model of of you know the kind of explosion of sampling as a compositional tool inside hip-hop and it became kind of a sort of reflection of a larger process that was happening culture-wide in terms of consciousness in terms of religion in terms of identity and so technosis really kind of emerged out of that and just Mm. to jump you know 20 years ahead to say where is it now it's a funny thing i i would say that things are both more weird and less weird and what i mean by that is that it feels like the actual texture of consensus reality, both as a kind of symbolic space that we all share through language and media and, you know, similar kind of human frameworks of perception that get organized by cultures, but, but even as a sort of physical, phenomenological fact, the reality has gotten weirder. Consensus reality is weirder, and the weather's weirder. You know, some people yeah. talk mm-hmm. about global warming is global weirding and it's actually a better term because warming doesn't just mean it's getting hotter it's also colder it's more extreme it's more unpredictable and so we all feel all across the planet this kind of dis-ease around 
our, where we live. Uh, the environment itself seems unpredictable, uncanny, uh, vaguely threatening, sort of surprising, um, and more than vaguely threatening in some ways. Uh, so that mm. part has gotten weirder. But at the same time, glory to, you know, whatever, the, the infinite capacity of capitalism or, or consumerism to absorb the edge, that weird as a kind of genre, as a kind of set of symbols, as a aesthetic, as a sensibility, as a set of artifacts, all of that is, you know, far less weird now. It's far more mundane part of the picture mm. along with psychedelics along with S&M along with um, you know UFOs along with the occult along with conspiracy theory like all of these edge things uh, that personally were, you know were always fascinating to me partly because they were countercultural or rejected by culture by mainstream culture mm -hmm. are are now to varying degrees integrated or at least available as part of the store for Netflix TV shows and, you know, internet memes and T-shirts and identities. You know, I mean, I just opened up uh, uh, the second edition of Goop magazine, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow's horrendous, <laughs> you, you know, yoga empire. Though fascinating, very interesting, it's very <laughs> weird. And there was an article not just about, like, you know, whatever, how to think positive and improve your love life. But it was specifically like an occult guide to dating or something. And it involved like, you know, witchcraft spells and, you know, red, pla uh, you know, uh, wax dolls and like, you know, actual occult stuff as part of this Gwyneth Paltrow environment. And it's just it, that kind of thing, that that particular juxtaposition, <laughs> juxtaposition is not very weird for me. You know, it's kind of like, oh, yeah. shit, it's gone. Like, what happened? Right. Sometimes I think that uh, the weird is a little bit like Hakim Bey's idea of the temporary autonomous zone. You know what I mean? Like, it's the if the question is where can uh, a stable, ut uh, like, anarchist society be found, um, I mean, this is like an argument that people have been having for a long time. And my understanding of Hakim Bey's uh, response to that is uh, it's like you can't have a stable anarchist utopia. What you can have is a party, you know, like like Burning Man, for example, which I've never been to. But in its early years, I, and people remember it as this kind of uh, as a realization of the idea of a temporary autonomous zone, but also in the larger scale as it is uh, become, um, I believe it became, it was incorporated a while ago, right? Burning Man? Do you mean li literally incorporated? Like there's like a business or like a, you know, like articles of incorporation. Yeah, I mean, it, I can't actually, I, I should know this be, because it was sort of my, my Ballywick for a while, less, less so now, but uh, they, they did... I still believe it's a it's a nonprofit, but it has some kind of also profit side. But in any case, right. the, it, it it definitely you know has shifted. And and in fact, for me personally, there's no better example of this incorporation of the weird, of the marginal, and all that than Burning Man, because I was blessed to go at a re relatively early time in 1994 when there was about 2,000 people when there were still guns, uh, when there were no street signs, and when it was pretty feral, 
you know, it's feral in a spiritual sense and feral in a most profane sense. And all of that mm-hmm. was kind of mixed together. And it was very weird, you know, capital W. It was disturbing and delightful and enchanting and demonic and ridiculous. And, and then all of those elements are still kind of there. So it's not like that's gone. It's just, it's just a great example of how things become incorporated, not just because in some simple sense, like consumer capitalism, like appropriates it, you know, we have this idea of appropriation. There's co-opting, yeah. co-optation. Yeah, that's the, com- you know, the, and it's not even really that exactly how it's co-opted, although you could say that, you know, Silicon Valley shows up and that's a place where they play and reaffirm their own kind of weird libertarian mutant neoliberal ideology. But that's still much more complicated than the than the traditional ideas of co-optation. And some of it is just media. It's just that images get mediated, things get mediated, costumes get mediated. And so people arrive, they know what it, they're supposed to do, and it all becomes less surprising just simply because it's it's part of the, the, the framework. It's part of the, the space. It's, it's another weird thing you can look up on the Internet, and that just changes it contextually. There's just no way out of that change because all those elements are still there. In fact, in some ways it with more glory, I mean, the art is much more advanced and intense and, you know, you know, expensive, but also just over the top, uh, than back in the day. But there was this nameless, you know, feral quality uh, that, that just doesn't really translate, at least for me. And then at some point I just kind of stopped going, but remains an example of that, that process. And I have to assume that that feral quality can still be found, perhaps not uh, still at Burning Man, but you know that that perhaps that it's that aspect that is uh, nomadic. It wanders around, and uh, mm. our own response to it is is necessarily going to be nomadic as well. I think that's that's totally true, and and I you know I've even heard you know rumors and whispers about you know gatherings in woods and you know anarcho crazy stuff and things that I don't even get to know where it is or anything, you know, so it's, I, I'm sure it's still out there, but I, I also think that in a way Burning Man represents what happens when you have a temporary autonomous zone and it becomes mediated in a, you know, strong way. Uh, it becomes open. It's too open to hide and how, you know, quickly that changes the environment in some ways for a, a good way. I think it's probably blown a lot of minds who would never have found it back in the day and that some of those people have brought more creativity and exuberance and, and tolerance for, for diversity or weirdness or whatever into their lives than might have happened. So it's, you know, it's a mixed bag. But I think that these days the secrecy is is becomes part of the equation in a way that I, I still I'm not really sure how to think about because it kind of goes against my anti-elitism. That's a good point because one of the like one of the words that came when you were describing the 90s scene out of which uh, technosis evolved, you the word subculture came up a lot and I kept thinking like, wow, that's it's not a word I see very much these days compared to like have, when I grew up in the nineties, subcultures were the thing. Like you found some subcultures and you plugged in and that's what, 
But today we don't have subcultures anymore. It just seems like everything's kind of on the surface, right? There's this like flat interface where the culture and full, and then you have RSS feeds and playlists and that sort of thing. But you don't have subcultures, uh, or do you? Uh, you know, maybe I'm just older and I'm just not part of them anymore. But um, no, I mean, I, I mean, I you know, obviously you can quibble about terms, but I I right. think more is gained uh, by, and maybe I'll, I'll I'll shift the word to something that's a little that kind of that relates, but it's a little bit more obvious, um, which is the the idea of the underground. I mean, because there's all sorts of subcultures. Right. You could talk about people who are into you know, whatever, uh, show dogs or, or, you know, African, my, my grandmother was an obsessive African violet grower. And, you know, there was a whole world of African violet freaks and they had their own thing. And there's all sorts of subcultures in that sense. Although it's true that people don't really refer to them at any more, but most of the subcultures I meant were in some ways part of what you could call the underground. And I think it's, for me, it has become very important to just accept that the underground in that sense is gone. It doesn't mean that there aren't little pockets of resistance and people doing things that are not known or even known, but have this kind of feral and predictable energy. And, you know, I'm not saying it's not there at all, but for me, it was actually really important to go to force myself to overcome my nostalgia in a way by going, no, it's actually gone. The conditions have actually changed such that that thing that I was always identifying with on some level, either as a participant or as an observer, is, is kind of gone because it required mm. certain conditions in media, certain conditions in the pace of information transfer, uh, certain conditions with the economy, certain ways that identities was, were, were formed uh, that just did no, I don't believe exist anymore. And... So I, you know, I realize I saw I sound like an even older man than what you said than what you were talking about with subcultures being gone, and I would accept that for a younger person who's in, invested in, you know, cultural diversity and interesting artistic movements and co- new communes and things, they might hear that as uh, overly uh, pessimistic or unfair. Right. But I also think that it it forces us to acknowledge how fundamentally things have changed. And to not just to not just insist on continuity, even though there are continuities. This is just my own kind of thing, and it relates to the weird and how it, and how it functions. Because the weird, really, at least in the 20th century, really has a lot to do with subcultures, and and not just in the 90s or even the 70s, but back into the 50s, and and arguably all the way back to the 20s when people were reading weird tales. Right. Um- one thing that was that you said that was interesting is that um, the way that the world's gotten weirder in twenty years. So it's 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 kind of like we've moved from a kind of epistemological weirdness that we were in with all these subcultures exploring the weird and the possibilities of of uh, breaking out of some kind of consensus state into you know weirder terrain, and now where we seem to collectively are confronted with almost like kind of ontological weirdness, like, you know, the hyper, you know, Timothy Morton's hyper objects, these, these huge uh, entities, these huge realities that we have to, that are incommensurate with the way that we've conceptualized the world so far. And that we have well, to like kind of deal warning. with, right. Like lo- global warming or, uh, you know, um, I guess in a way, Donald Trump is a kind of hyper object because, 
for anyone who's who knew Trump before he was president, it's it's almost inconceivable that this particular person ended up in that position. Like it's just like anything's possible now in a weird way. And um, actually, yeah, actually, there's a particular thing that uh, about probabilities that the election of Donald Trump kind of got us into is, you know, in the days running up to that election, people were saying, well, if you run this election, you know, 20 times, 19 times, Hillary Clinton's going to win. And uh, and so people who are not maybe trained in statistics were just sort of like, oh, OK, whew, you know, like that. Those are really long odds. But the thing is that you can even if you, you know, you uh, the what am I trying to say? Like, uh, that still means that his number can come up. Right. Right? It, 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 the, the probabilities doesn't say whether something is going to happen in any given instance. It just says kind of how likely it is. But in the moment, the problem with probabilistic thinking is it gets you involved in this somewhat abstract way of thinking where you're kind of discounting the here and now. And the election of Donald Trump, if nothing else suddenly brought people face to face with the weirdness of chance. You know, it's like Ian Hacking talks about the taming of chance. Probabilistic math is a way of taking something weird and uh, kind of scary, just the contingency that can erupt in any human life, um, and, and taming it. Uh, but the election of Donald Trump, a singularity, something that, you know, kind of reveals the limits of a kind of um, uh, popular sort of comfort in probabilities. Does this make any sense? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I would phrase it slightly different. I think it's a very, very astute point to talk about uh, probabilities that way. But I, I think there's a, there's a difference between the sort of using probability as a way to uh, sort of control the weirdness of contingency of what we might think of as pure chance, and then the weirdness that's introduced when the low probability wins. So yeah. that when the 20th of the 19 turns out to be the case. And this is actually a very important insight into one dimension of the weird. And one of the things that's happened when I started to really think about the weird as a category and to recognize that in, in a way it was a very significant and an almost obvious category of reality, of aesthetics, of experience, that nonetheless was not acknowledged as such. It kind of existed, you know, in a way in the margins or in the periphery. And so I started to really pay attention to when people, anybody, you know, conversation, movies, books, whatever, would use the term in, in what kind of context. And one of the things I, I realized by paying attention that way is that it is a term that people, and particularly people who have no interest in or little interest in offering supernatural explanations for events, who are more or less secular, more or less materialist, causality-oriented, the way that they would refer to, to events that were extremely unlikely. So, you know, a synchronicity or coming up with, you know... Uh, whatever, four d uh, snake eyes in a row or something, you know, a, a statistically possible but almost anomalous event would be tagged mm -hmm. as, yeah, that was weird. Like you tell us synchronicity and a new, whereas a hippie New Ager might go, yeah, it was more proof that we're part of like a bigger story. <laughs> you know, right. I think probably all of us here would go, 
yeah, pretty weird, huh? You know, yeah. and so it's a place to locate things that are both conceivable in a rational way or a statistical or probabilistic way, and yet have this, you know, extra quality to them, a kind of fate. You know, it's the old, the old, you know, uh, aspect of, of the of the term that has to do with fate. That there's some kind of oracular power in the unlikely probability or the unlikely repetition of numbers, you know, that Freud talks about in the uncanny essays, like, you know, you just keep running into the same number one day and you're going to feel like there's something uncanny there. And he has some idea about repetition, whatever, but it's really more like, it's just statistically unlikely. So when it happens, you're like, something else is in the room. And that's part right, of, I yeah. think, the, the wonder of the weird is that it's, it's a marker of something that's possi- rationally possible, but unlikely. And at the same time, that very unlikeliness becomes a portal into these other aesthetic dimensions that have more to do with fate or the oracular or the prophetic or, you know, something stranger than that, the way that I think Donald Trump functions, at least for those of us who weren't interested in him being president, is it's not just a big bummer. I mean, Bush was a big bummer. It's it's much, much more peculiar than that, much more ontological, much more dreamlike, much more interesting. Um, there's uh, you just uh, what you just said there reminds me of a, a, a nice uh, passage in that uh, boing boing um, piece that you wrote um, that we'll link weird on shit our, on our website called weird shit, um, which if I understood correctly is an excerpt from your upcoming book, correct? Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. A, or it's a version of some of the ideas that I play with. Yeah, it, it's a wonderful piece. Um, and you know, brief but really, really thorough and uh, kind of exhaustive in in a cool way. Um, there's a moment where you talk talk about the weird sisters in Macbeth, and the way that Shakespeare uses the word weird, and I found that very interesting. There's a there's a moment I'll I'll just quote you uh, one sentence. Um, you write this suggests to some Macbeth scholars that in addition to their oracular knowledge, the witches, the weird sisters are also defined by their willful resistance to the norm, a perverse and chaotic twist away from the law. And I found that interesting, given the central role that the Weird Sisters play in in setting in motion like the events of the play itself, right? Because the, the Weird Sisters kind of instigate the whole thing. They get the whole thing going, and yet they are the weird kind of rift in the work as well. Like, they're the ones who bring in this kind of chaotic outside force that disturbs a state of affairs that otherwise have gone on in this normal way. But because they interfere with it, they set all this stuff in, in motion. And yet they are not reducible as characters or as forces to the kind of normal state of affairs that they disturb. They, they're kind of this, not transcendent, but this kind of like um, uh, surge of, of, uh, of the anomalous in, in the world of Macbeth. I don't know if I'm expressing it very no, well. No, no, I think that, that's totally right. I mean, another way of thinking about it is that it's, that there, it's a twist or a swerve. Right. That's why it has some relationship to the to the kind of almost in an etymological sense to to perversion. It's not just sexual perversion, but but the the notion of of a kind of twisting or a subvert or a pervert, you know, that kind of uh, right. turn. And and so that's what what the cluster is so interesting. Where on the one hand you have this notion of fate, of necessity, of of you know, and that's the kind of one of the most original senses of the term that there, we have our weird. It was his weird to 
die right. on that battlefield or whatever. So there's this sense of like the inexorable machinery of fate, which is how we think about necessity as a kind of machine because we're, we're you, know, supposed, you know, scientific, causality, necessity means causality. And yet it's precisely the way that these figures and forces elude conventional causality that makes them weird. And so the term anomaly, again, I think is a, is a key term to understand the, the weird because the, an anomaly can be used meaningfully in a scientific language. You say <coughs> you're trying to explain some, some phenomena or you're trying to s- explain a set of data and you're going, well, no, that thing right there is an anomaly. You know, and it means something. It means something scientifically empirically right and yet it's also simultaneously and i believe always always also a portal into something that eludes that frame of reference and it kind of leaks in and you're like oh man what are we going to do with this thing which is why it comes up a lot with ufology another great example of where like the supernatural and you know scientific technological imagination overlap you talk about anomalies in the paranormal, anomalies in cryptozoology. The whole Fordian thing is kind of an anomalous science. And it's because mm. it's this hinge point uh, between causal necessity and some other kind of, you know, it's harder, to, it's harder to language that other kind, that other kind of patterning. Or You find yourself, you know, looking for different kinds of figural language or figurative language. Uh, to, to handle it because it's abstract and difficult to put in words. Uh, you mentioned Mark Fisher, who wrote uh, the book The Weird and the Eerie. Uh, and, and Fisher uses a, almost a spatial metaphor instead of thinking in terms of a directional metaphor, talking of swerves, um, or, or, or perhaps like an optical metaphor, like a, like a warp in the lens. He talks about things coming from capital O outside. Um, you know, that this is a quote, that which lies beyond standard perception, cognition, and experience, when something that lies beyond finds its way inside. And then he goes on and says, yet if the entity or object is here, then the categories we have up until now used to make sense of the world cannot be valid. The weird thing is not wrong, after all. It is our conceptions that must be inadequate. Uh, and so that seems to me to sort of... Um, uh, piggyback a little bit on what you were just saying. Uh, it is difficult to find the words for this, but this sort of sense of um, something coming from somewhere else and yet being stubbornly, obdurately here, and uh, its hereness calling forth some kind of response from us, even if it's just kind of a dumbstruck amazement. Yeah. No, I, I love that, that, that idea of the outside, and that's something else I, I, de- I develop in, in the book uh, that I'm you know, finishing up right now called High Weirdness. And uh, the, re- you know, the reason I particularly like the outside is because uh, why I started thinking about the weird is I was trying to figure out what connected all of these crazy 70s figures you know, to... Uh, big, you know, big dose psychedelic figures, Terrence McKenna and Robert Anton Wilson, and then my, my old fave, Philip K. Dick, who I've been working on for, you know, 25, 30 years. Uh, and, you know, I was bringing them together, and I was some resonance there, and, and it was clearly about more than drugs, because Dick, was, though he took a lot of drugs at some points in his life, wasn't a, a psychedelic freak like 
the other guys, and I was like, oh, there's something, you know, oh, weird, high weird, high weirdness, high weirdness, that's it. And then I was just like, wow, what does that mean? How can I, how can I go with that? And, and one of the ways that that's an appropriate term and that I, you know, Fisher's book was just kind of like, oh, thank God, this is just, you know, great that, that he can see it from coming from his, his zone and his concerns. And it's very similar to what I was intuiting is it's is this relationship to the outside and when you look at radical uh, you know radical anomalous anomalous experience like crazy high dose psychedelic use or you know in Robert Anton Wilson's case what happens when you take tons of acid and do Crowleyan sex magic and you know you're in this demi moan of paganism and conspiracy and I mean you know that's gonna like that's gonna feed back something into your life. Or, you know, mm. Philip K. Dick having his extraordinary experiences. And like one of the things that connects them all is that there you really can talk about an outside, that there's some sort of outside that is, a, like you say, it's in your face, but it's also not categorizable or it scrambles all categories. Uh, and and to just say, think of it as a projection from within which is the usual we think about psychosis or about drug experience, like, oh, you're just sort of projecting it onto the world. You're seeing meaning where it isn't there. You're hearing voices that weren't there. You're, you're recognizing faces in the clouds. It's like, no, there's something else going on that has to do with a radical outside. Right. Because, you know, uh, Henry Bergson said that we... we we don't actually see the world. We just see the labels that we affix to things, right? So we're con- we live in a. Uh, I've I've talked about I've called it Sign City in one essay I wrote, where we live in this this city of signs. And uh, what one of the things that art does is it kind of tears a little. It, it tears that, that that the fabric of this Sign City up a little bit so that we can we can enter what Baudelaire would call a forest of symbols or kind of like. A world that's been stripped of its um, of these fixed conceptual overlays. The outside is kind of the world that we're in, and uh, but what the inside is this kind of conceptual submarine that we use to navigate it. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what the, these moments of weirdness kind of like they open up, like you said, a portal to that to that preconceptual or, or tr- tr- let's call it transconceptual world for a second. And that's why you can't just they're, they're not just projections. You're actually seeing uh, reality from a different perspective. Or you can argue that one is seeing reality in these moments from a, a singular perspective for a second, a little bit outside of your, your the kind of semantic space that you usually inhabit. Yeah, yeah, I, I see that. And, you know, and one thing that I'm, I'm picking from your 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 discussion there, because I, I was actually just using the Foray de Symbol in another essay that I was writing, and I, I've, I've returned since I first read that as a, as a kid, um, uh, in high school, I, I discovered Baudelaire and fell in love with it. And, and I, that's that, that poem has always stayed with me. And what, what it makes me think of also is that, is that if, okay, if we have, we've now we have these two zones, we have this, you know, this, this, in, this submarine world of established signs that we mostly use to navigate. And then we have these cracks that are sometimes just overwhelming or, just un we can't wrap our ideas about it and they shake us up they're like lightning bolts of you know the other uh, there's mm-hmm. a there's a middle zone and when he talks about this 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 forest of symbols 
And the idea of correspondences, he's, of course, drawing from uh, the, the kind of pre-modern world of symbolic associations of correspondences between earth and heaven, microcosm, macrocosm. Let's, you, you could sort of expand it to the larger world of the occults, the sort of, this kind of esoteric web work of associations that are not organized uh, along rationalist lines, but orga- organized ac- according to what Foucault would call a different episteme uh, mm-hmm. that has to do with similarity and sympathy and resonance. And one of the things that's interesting to me about this whole question of, of the weird or this encounter with the outside is that there's also a sort of middle place. There's a, a threshold that is crossed and that that threshold often has this esoteric or occult character. So I talked about Robert Anton Wilson. And you can see the way that he himself is a pretty rational, skeptical guy. Like he's aware of science. He's aware of cybernetics. He thinks in terms of behaviorism. He's, he's you know, he, he starts to deconstruct language through a kind of Krasipsky approach. You know, he's not a mystic in that sense. But he becomes interested in these symbol systems partly because if you engage them, you know, and I still don't, can't explain why this is the case, and I'm, I'm very curious what you guys think. If you sort of engage them with some degree of gusto, if you begin to practice magic, if you start to, you know, just sort of immerse yourself in esoteric language, uh, if you kind of cultivate... You know, if you explore the, the, the zones of the Internet where these occult conspiracies are kind of laid out, and you start to think about symbols and how symbols are functioning and as kind of, you know, magical icons of different powers and all that kind of stuff. Even if you're doing it in a fairly rational way or kind of down to earth or just kind of out of curiosity, it's often the case that things start to happen. Like, you know, synchronicities mm. happen, things lean in, there's weird dreams you, you know, meet somebody, something happens, you know, whatever. And if you add, you know, drugs or, or trance states or, you know, meditation on a mountaintop at midnight or whatever onto it, you know, all sorts of things can happen. So it's an interesting place because those symbol systems are not totally outside. They come from human culture. We can trace them historically. We can show where they exist in the culture as signs, as symbols. And yet it's like, it's like they're kind of you know, they're like, they're like thresholds out of Sign City. They're like, maybe it's like the difference between Sign City and Symbol City. <laughs> and then right, on the far right. side, you get, you, get, you get through Symbol City, and then at the end of that, then things, you know, all bets are off. <laughs> or or you, you, have, you have like Sign City, uh, Symbol Forest, and then the Desert of the Real. There it is. <laughs> that's good. It's like a little fantasy world kind of D&D map. Um, but, but yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. Um, again, just to go back to Bergson, cause he, he writes at the end of, um, introduction to metaphysics, he writes about, uh, philosophy choosing to, sh- he, he's, he's kind of, um, hinting at a new philosophy that would be interested in constructing or creating transparent concepts so that if philosophy could generate concepts that aren't opaque, that you could almost kind of see through. Um, and what he describes as these, these concepts of a, a kind of what he calls a non-Platonist philosophy, a philosophy that has truly transcended or, uh, you know, left Plato in the dust, uh, such a philosophy would be a lot like 
art. And Graham Harmon says something similar. The philosophy must become art so that we, how do we construct symbol uh, concepts that are uh, able to handle more reality than the, the limited concepts we've been able to construct uh, up to this point. And um, it seems to me like that was a big part of Deleuze's project was to develop that type of philosophy. And um, what's interesting is that uh, a lot of the philosophers, like, for example, Deleuze, who went in that direction, end up in occult terrain or, you know, using a lot of, of these pre-philosophical, quote-unquote, uh, ideas about reality and about, uh, I don't know, there's just, the, there's a, it just seems that the minute you step out of a particular discursive mode of thinking about the world, you almost automatically are led into this, into the strange company with the occultists and the magicians and the alchemists in a weird way. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think that's really, that's really pretty clear and that you can even see the way certain thinkers rec recognize that and then swerve away from it because they're not interested in the, in the implications of it. I would think of um, Baudrillard as someone is in this category mm -hmm. where there's a sort of sense that the, he's opening up these kind of almost magical possibilities or ways of thinking and then there's a, a strong kind of uh, a sort of whatever you want to call that kind of postmodern rationalism, that disappointed rationalism where it's, you're no longer invested in, in rationalism as a, as, a, as a philosophical possibility, but you still have sort of the instincts of it. Whereas Deleuze was actually able to go and go out to read to go, okay, let's go, let's drift, let's, let's go on a derive. You know, what, what is the line from yeah. uh, the, uh, what is philosophy, uh, you know, to think is to follow the witch's flight. And you're like, they're not kidding right. around. There's a reason that, Castaneda is in there, or that Lovecraft is in there, or that Harmon and so many of these, uh, you know, speculative realists turns to Lovecraft because even though Lovecraft is a particularly, you know, unpleasant version of right. uh, of this uh, foray to symbol, it's 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 opposite. You know, it's still we're still in that kind of zone. And mm -hmm. whether you think about it, it's the return of the repressed, like. You know, philosophy try to separate itself from a kind of mythic context that in some ways it, it always has to kind of return to, that maybe that's too reactionary. Maybe it's that thinking itself, once it leaves a certain crystallization, inevitably begins to resonate. And that resonance, you know, calls forth these kinds of correspondences and things begin mm -hmm. to to drift or to sway or to to open up to an outside. One of the things that amused me in reading that Boing Boing essay, Weird Shit, is you're taking a shot at the uncanny. Uh, this is a quote. The similar notion of the uncanny, now the canny, uh, similar that is to the weird, the similar notion of the uncanny is, on the other hand, basically an establishment term, a well-established literary effect with a sophisticated psychoanalytic pedigree. Uh, and elsewhere, you refer to the fancy pants frisson of the uncanny, which made me lol. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was taking that. That was definitely one of those pot shots you take at your, you know, at some under, undergraduate class that always irked you <laughs> a little. I can't help but wonder if that was also taking a little bit of a pot shot at the way academics and you just got your PhD within the last couple of years, right? So you know whereof you speak. Um, the way academics will take something like the weird, but sort of approach it with like a hazmat suit and a pair of tweezers 
Um, and so if we're going to talk about these things, well, we don't want to get in those, you know, occultists involved. We don't want to get uh, these cranks and these weirdos, these UFO enthusiasts, um, these, you know, people who are into the, like, you know, I don't know, crystal power or whatever. Um, so we're going to use a term that's drawn from a discourse that has sufficiently intellectual pedigree, which is to say a Freudian discourse. Um, and you, the reason I'm bringing this up is in, uh, you were talking a moment ago how there's a kind of a, a cohort, like an intellectual slash academic cohort that includes, you know, uh, Harmon, uh, Eugene Thacker, Mark Fisher, uh, for whom... Lovecraft is like the touchstone, right? Instead of using Freud to conjure um, uh, terms that we can use to approach this domain, we're going to use Lovecraft. Um, and I guess I'm working towards a question here. Uh, is Philip K. Dick such an intellectual touchstone for you? Oh, wow, that's an interesting question. Let me, let me first talk a little bit about the uncanny because I think there's a, there's a further point to be made Beyond the way in which uh, uh, the the way it was, it became a way to approach the weird and then swerve away from it or or re remain unstained uh, by it. And Fisher points this out very clearly at the beginning of his book on the on the the weird and the eerie, is that that ultimately, and this is true for Freud, and it's also true the way that it's used in literary theory or in film theory, is that it is that however peculiar or anomalous uh, disturbing the event that is associated with the uncanny is in a given text or, or whatever, it's, it's always folded back to the inside. It's always traced back psychologically to a family drama, to an, to an mm. issue in the psyche. And one of the things that makes the weird weird is that it, it is, and this is I really, it's always a claim about reality. It's not just the subject. It's not just the mind, mm. the psyche, the interior, you know, and that's why it's, it's not about psychosis projecting its visions onto the world. And so, of course, Lovecraft is perfect here because that's part of the, the free zone of Lovecraft is that there's always this sense that there's something outside of the text or outside of the character's universe that is breaking in. And it's that, that simultaneous desire to touch the outside, to touch the real, and the inability to do so entirely or, or satisfyingly or, or to, to be able to master that process that attracts thinkers like, like Harmon. Or you can even talk about Lacan here if you want to. Uh, and I, that, I think, is really key because then you can see that the language of the uncanny is not just a kind of class language, which I also think it is, uh, but it's, a, it's, a, it's almost like a kind of distraction. Like, don't, no, 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 don't think that this has anything to do with the way reality really is, because we can't really talk about that, or we don't really want to talk about that. We want to talk about you and your, and your daddy, right. and, you know, and, <laughs> and, you, and it's like, and then they're like, the monster is walked through the room. It's like that film where the gorilla walks through all the people playing basketball, and you don't notice the gorilla. You're like, you know, and you're like, what? It's like the weird thing just passed through and you missed your shot because you were yeah. like thinking about your daddy, you know. <laughs> Can so. I just interject with one little anecdote before you get to Philip K. Dick? Because that like that really resonated with me. I, I once um, I wrote a screenplay 
uh, several years ago called Thorn Apples. And it was a story that it was kind of my my attempt at translating Arthur Machen to the screen. So I uh, I actually ended up uh, getting Thomas Ligotti to read the script. Um, Thomas Ligotti is a fantastic fantastic horror writer. We had a we had a, a very intense but very short correspondence <clears throat> around that time. So he and he he really liked it. He really liked the first two acts. He's like, at first you're nailing something. It's like he had nothing but praise. But then he says, but act three like it just falls apart. And I knew this was true. And, um, and I asked him why. And he said, dirty little secrets is that everything, all the weirdness that I'd managed to like, like to, to, to create in the first part, all then kind of got all converged on this boring, uh, mommy, (laughs) daddy, family drama at the end where everything is resolved in that everything. And I was so, and he, he was right. And, um, I ended up chucking the script, uh, not just for that reason, but, uh, it was just, it's so true that when everything gets brought back to an inside, and that's the whole point of anti-Oedipus, right? With Deleuze and Guattari is everything gets, gets, uh, re-territorialized always onto the family or to, to some known familiar symbol that we, that we hold on to in order to, to explain everything. Everything gets uh, reduced to projection. Everything gets reduced to, uh, to you know, things like the, the uncanny or the anomalous in the sense of like the, the, uh, the deviation from the norm, you know, and all. So that's a really, really important observation, I think, that you've made there. Yeah, it reminds me of I, if I don't have the strength to do it, but there's so many Hollywood films. You know, I go I go see the sci-fi fantasy films or whatever because I'm looking for that hit. I'm looking for that place of enigma or that sense of of transcendence or or enchantment or the unexpected or something. And it's you know it's occasion you know it's, it's scattered about. It's salted through in some ways. But you know, if I had, if I had, I would walk out of the theater, you know, after the second act, because you don't want to stick around because right. they're always <laughs> going to resolve it on the family. They're always going right. to come back to mommy, daddy, and you're just like, yeah. once again, you've taken me from like, you know, like what's a great example? Uh, contact. You know, I mean, that's you know based on a book, but you know, you go to this, right. you go through like some ketamine wormhole, you know, and it's completely bizarre. And it's there's been all this weird setup to that, and there's strange symbolism about religion, and you know, it's very strange. And if you know, if you're if you're if you're going with it, you you've gotten you've broken through to to some other narrative world, and you wind up in the other place. And the aliens are going to use your your own memories to talk to you. That's that's a crazy idea. Let's go with it. But what happens? You're talking to your dad, right? You're right. At a beach, <laughs> and you're like, "Oh my god, I can't get out." I, I want to answer your question about about Dick. Right. Yeah, yeah. Phil Dick is is that that touchstone for me, along with Lovecraft. And in fact, I read. The more I read Dick, the more I read him as a kind of horror writer with a good sense of humor. Uh, yeah. And and so I actually see him very much kind of in line with 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 Lovecraft in some ways, and and I. Particularly, you know, I'm a, a particular fan of the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, and that's one that's you know even more overtly love, Lovecraftian. Uh, but yeah, I would I would say because one of the things that's absent, I mean, there's there's such different figures, but one of the things that's absent, um, I guess, in Lovecraft, knowledge is always malign. You know, the, the if the more you know, the more insane you're going to be. 
Uh, it's always right. a bummer to know more. And that, you know, which is kind of a fascinating figure. You know, even in the Call of Cthulhu game, the role-playing game, that's what happens. It's like you're, you're in a race to, like, learn enough to be able to deal with the problem but not learn too much that you go insane, right. which is right. kind of a beautiful metaphor for intellectuals anyway. But <laughs> with, with Dick, it's more, it's more ambivalent. You know, he still has a, a Christian side or a Gnostic side where there's something in Gnosis that is liberating or, uh, you know, sweet, uh, uh, you know, positive and firming. And yet it, all, it somehow in matching that or integrating that or translating that into our broken, you know, ersatz universe, it, it, it gets bent or, or um, garbled. Uh, but there's still this kind of uh, a, a more of a, of a hopefulness. Nah, it's not quite the right word. A more of an openness to possibility. It doesn't see, it's not yeah. quite so claustrophobic, at least some of the time. Actually, J.F. and I once had an email exchange where we were talking about the difference between Lovecraft and Philip K. Dick. And one thought that we had, or I can't remember who, which of us had this thought, um, you know, Dick is dealing with uh, a fundamentally paranoid situation where, you know, here I am on the inside and there's stuff coming to me in breaking in from some outside, you know, whether it's like Vallis or whatever. Um, and I am in a world of asymmetrical information. Like, I can't tell what the intelligences are or what the entities are that are breaking in from whatever outside. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the exegesis, he's constantly reconsidering who is, uh, who, who exactly he's talking to or what is the nature of the communications he's receiving. Um, but he's forced to sort of navigate the universe anyway. Um, and he's almost sort of like a, like a hard-boiled detective or something, a gumshoe, who's picking up clues and trying to stitch them together. But it's basically, we're getting the perspective from the side of the human being, the classic Philip K. Dick hero who's, you know, just a normal schlub with like a pot belly and a shitty job. Um, who is put in an extraordinary situation where he has to kind of follow the clues, he has to put it together, he has to try and act in, a un in an incomprehensible universe based on very incomplete information. But there's something about that that feels like a kind of a, it's sort of relatable. That's like a, a, maybe an eldritch version of the kind of um, day-in, day-out sort of coping that we do as human beings. Whereas I always thought that Lovecraft is approaching the same universe, chaotic and ultimately unknowable, but he's addressing it, as it were, from the point of view of the universe, like these various human beings who stray upon the truth, uh, who, who find their way out there are, as you say, they're driven mad by the experience. It breaks them because they don't belong there. Um, you know, they're... Um, uh, they're just br they're broken on the anvil right. of uh, I guess the real, um, and so you have these two different ways of negotiating the same weird reality. But one tends to do it from the subject side, and the other tends to do it from the object side. That's very well put. I mean, and it really you know is reflected in the you know the the, the social relations and the in, in the in the stories. You know that that. 
Dick is always writing these like incredibly webbed worlds where there's all of these social interactions. And while they're often fraught, they're very rarely a pleasant deal. And they're in the, you know, it's, it's, it's not a pretty picture. There's still a, a, a very strong sense of a kind of the way in which, well, to put it simply like the, the, that our hearts are always in relation and that to be, in some sense, still a, a, a being mm. with a heart is you're in relation. But in Lovecraft, yeah. that, that's not there. You know, they're, they're solitary. That, that's that whole, like, you know, singular mind, in the, you know, disconnected from people. And even though Lovecraft himself had very rich uh, friendships and relationships, he was by no means a, a, a you know, even though he, he lived a lot of his life through letters, he was, a, you know, perfectly you know he had friends you know he was he was he was enjoying he enjoyed his friendships um but the, but in the stories that there is this kind of uh, uh cut off quality and you know if i have to choose which one of these nightmares that i'm gonna live in you know i'll take the one with the the broken schlubs in it <laughs> <laughs> no i have to sort of piggyback on the um on the the lovecraft thing i have a an onion, uh, like a joke newspaper article pinned to outside my door of my office at the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music. Lovecraftian school board member wants madness added to curriculum. <laughs> Have you seen this? Yeah, that's a good one. It's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's the idea that there's somebody who uh, um, argues that, uh, you know, students need to return to the fundamentals uh taught in the Necronomicon in, in order to develop the skills they need to be driven to the very edge of sanity. Anyway, I, and, and my joke is that that's, you know, that's kind of my job, right, in academia is to be the Lovecraftian, um, the, the Lovecraftian schoolmaster. Um, and I guess, so, you know, what I'm getting at is uh, a question that I remember, I think I might have asked you this actually ages ago, like I sent you an email, um, like, how do you find a space for a Phil K. Dickian worldview or a Lovecraftian worldview or just like, a, like you know, a worldview shaped by these kinds of figures? Uh, what's the interface between that and the academic world? Because, you know, you're, you're, an unusual, you're an unusual guy because you're coming at the academic world having already had a whole other career in, in uh, uh like rock journalism, you used to write for Spin magazine, right? Yeah, yep. And and coming up, coming coming up in the subcultures, and here you are, sort of like writing about them. So how do you handle that? Well, I mean, I I always had the relationship of of writing about, you know, because I was a, a cultural journalist, so I was kind of a classic, uh, you know, participant observer in a lot of worlds. And so, you know, I went to Burning Man as a I don't never like the phrase burner, but I went to Burning Man as someone who wanted to, you know, have as full an experience as I could and certainly did. And at the same time, there was kind of I was, uh, you know, I'm sort of a natural anthropologist of the imagination, I guess you'd say, or, or a cultural anthropologist. It just that's just how I am. Like I'm, I'm in a weird scene, like I'm at a bus station and I'm just sort of like. I'm already the alien anthropologist kind of describing how the thing works. So I'm, that, that's sort of my natural state. Um, right. And so that kind of, on the one hand, it doesn't really feel that different to me to write about this stuff for a PhD versus writing about it for, 
Spin Magazine or Gnosis Magazine or whatever, because there was always an intellectual side to the anthropo- anthropological practice for me. Um, and so, it, you know, it, I've just changed the weights, uh, uh, as, uh, as it were. And at the same time, I also kind of feel like a little bit of a, um, uh, a little bit of a Trojan horse in that I, for, you know, a lot of reasons, I've always been interested in critical theory. I thought of myself as a kind of graduate student who just didn't go to graduate school for 20 years or, or did, did field work for 20 years. Um, and, you know, I always, I never really left the kind of literary theor- theoretical, philosophical, cultural studies framework that I imbibed at Yale in the 80s. And it just kind of warped or kind of took a back seat sometimes as I went into more journalistic uh, endeavors. Um, but now it's sort of almost different that I, I have all this facility with these languages and an excitement by certain trends in them, certainly speculative realism. And I'm a big Latour fan, and I, I, I like certain ways of talking about objects that people are doing now. I sense a sort of a kind of proto-animism in, in some of the ways that people are approaching things that it feels very rich uh, to me. And in a lot of ways, what I kind of wanted to do is sort of, you know, bring some, uh, you know, ideas or concepts or problems enough into the academic discourse that the, the kind of strategies of deferral that we were earlier talking about with the uncanny, where you either move to this, you, you move to the psyche, you move to the interior, you move to the erudite, whatever, that you, that I want to, hopefully like stain that so it it can't be you can't get out of it that that easily which is why psychedelics are really important for me not just because I'm interested in in psychedelics and I consider myself a psychedelic person and it gives me a certain a sort of kind of weird identity that's always a little bit underground in, in an intellectual world but it's also that I kind of my experience with psychedelics is to to put it really like a simple in a simple figure is that I got like some bubble gum stuck on the bottom of my shoe and I can't get it off. And I just, I can't get it off. I, I don't know what to do with it. It doesn't, it's stuck and I'm stuck and I don't, it's weird. I, I don't know how do I get it. What am I going to do with it? And I'm like, here's some bubble gum guys, you know, go at it. Like there's, so that, so there's sort of a sense of like bringing something in to the discourse and the way in which ideas are, are constructed in there from an outside, because I think that psychedelics have, have not really had their their sort of day within mm. um, academia, uh, but in other so in other ways, I, it doesn't feel that different to me. It's almost like a dissertation was a another genre that I I wanted to try my hand at. I wrote a rock opera. I wrote a, some rock criticism. I I did some you know technological history. You know, whatever. I've done this different kind of stuff. I wrote poetry. Oh, I'm going to write a dissertation. <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. uh, where it goes, I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I, I have so many problems with the ac- with academia as an institution. And I think in a lot of ways it's getting worse for a lot of reasons, but just the way that a lot of things are getting worse. And I'm not really sure what my personal relationship to ongoing academic production will be. Um, I still you know, intend to go to conferences and, and write uh, uh, scholarly papers because I enjoy the, the, the genre, but um, I don't, I can't be, I can't, I don't imagine myself being incorporated within it. 
yeah, it's yeah. almost like an outward bound program that I went through and and that I'm kind of done with the monkey on my back that was always like, oh, well, you can't really be a real intellectual till you get that Ph.D. Right. <laughs> and it's kind of bullshit, but it was there. And now it's done. You know, I, I fed that monkey. He's, he's, he's The trick is you have to get the Ph.D. to realize it was bullshit all along. And it's it, yeah. And I, and I even knew that. That's what's so weird about those things. <laughs> it's the same thing with secret societies. I know that, you know, you stay in the OTO and you do all of their things and it's like crazy and weird and what's behind the door and it's going to be spooky and am I going to have to sign my soul? Then you finally get there and you're like, you know, whatever, you, you, you know, you're drinking Coca-Cola with some bunch of people. And you're like, hey, you know, we got to we got to you know, we got to raise some funds for the next. You know, yeah. And you're like, shit. Hey, can you stuff some envelopes? Or there's just it's just a dildo in a basket at the end. <laughs> you know but that's just, so there's a beauty to that as well so uh i'm still navigating how it's gonna how it's gonna play out i hope somebody gives me the opportunity to teach and 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 you know or you know that opens up some you know further d- discussion in that in that kind of world it's really i don't want to turn away from it even if i don't get a you know an academic position but these days you know with with podcasts and all the stuff that's happening, you know, there's, I, I, I do have faith that as we get into a weirder world and things kind of fall apart, that, you know, intellectuals will find each other across those aisles uh, between the institution and outside the institution more because we just, we don't, we don't have anyone else to turn to. And uh, at the yeah. very least, we need our, we need our others <laughs> to make it through. The fact that more and more academics are getting interested in um, in topics uh, that touch on the weird, right? So the question is, um, in traditional Western scholarship, it's been possible to at least pretend that a certain objectivity, a certain distanciation, a certain like uh, um, distance was possible between the researcher and his and his. Uh, his chose or her chosen subject of inquiry. It seems with the weird though, the minute you step into this territory, uh, it becomes impossible to not get involved. And I remember Jung wrote a lot about this when he wrote about uh, psychotherapy or the type of psychotherapy he was developing was that you can't do it without getting involved. You can't just, you can't just sit in your chair and you're, you know, the analysis on the couch and you keep that dis- at some uh, at some point there'll be you know the transference and all this the stuff will happen and the therapist needs to be wounded in order to heal and all that like the wounded healer kind of thing like there's just no way so is it possible to uh to study these subjects in the traditional mode or is this is the very kind of like like a trojan horse with a weird entering academia is there a chance that it might transform what scholarship means how it's done in in the west or do you do you know what i'm trying to get i know at? exactly what you mean i mean it, it's it's the, the, those those questions are, are close to my heart partly because they're also psychedelic questions in fact it's even more obvious with psychedelics in right. some sense i'm just not really interested in hearing what anybody has to say unless they are you know, super up on their neuroscience or super up on their history or something with something exceptional. If they're not experienced, I'm just not that interested. I, I, I don't, and I don't think I should be. And that fact 
is really significant. And it, mm -hmm. it goes to the heart of a lot of big questions about not just about psychedelics, but about science studies and about consciousness and how we construct reality. You know, it's, it opens up some of these same, uh, you know, kind of kind of issues that the the issues of the the weird do, and and even psychoanalysis to, in in a, in a lot of ways, at least in my experience of it. Um, so it does seem to be at least symptomatic of something, and whether the what is it symptomatic of? Perhaps the humanities and even the social sciences finally recognize that they're not sciences like that, that that objectivity thing is just not really available. But I would also hope that, and I think this is both true both for psychedelics and the weird, is that there is enough of a trace of the object or the other or the outside or something that's not just another mutation of human signs, another kind of twist of interiority that, that forces you to, to not just gaze at the, at the belly button or, you know, be, become narcissistic. Right. And what that makes me think of is something in, within academia is something that happened to uh, another barely, you know, a, you know, a, a small discipline, like pagan studies. And what happened with people who were, you know, themselves mostly, perhaps almost exclusively pagan to some degree, or neo-pagan, who were studying it, uh, you know, and there was some great historical work and, and, you know, not that much theoretical stuff that I ever came across that was that interesting, but, you know, whatever, it was fine. But what a lot of people did was kind of study their own tradition, essentially their own experience, but with the artifact of some kind of objective sort of anthropo anthropological language. So it was very mm. weird kind of like, who is this good for? It's like it's sort of like a, the, the ghost of a outside being used to kind of reflect on an inside. And, you know, you see this mm. a lot in identity politics, too, where people are kind of theorizing their own identity, but they're not really speaking from their own identity because they get the power from the theoretical position. But it's not really outside, even though it's looking like it's outside. And I find all that very dizzying and not what I'm interested in with the psychedelics or the weird which is that there's still some relation to the outside or in philosophy to the concept, that it's not just like we're making it all up here, kids. It's like we still have to struggle with some kind of, you know, we still have to wrangle over the concept. We still have to follow through the consequences of our thoughts. We still have to understand what does it mean to have our objectivity subverted and characterize that in a way that we can share uh, without just going down our own little niche. Now, that may not be possible, but it does suggest to me, and I think, again, psychedelics is an even more obvious example because it affects not just the humanities. It affects neuroscience. I mean, if you mm -hmm. are a you know, reductive cognitive philosopher who's not interested in the humanities, thinks they should be colonized by cognitive science, and if you don't have a good, robust rich explanation of entities, parallel dimensions, synchronicities, and time loops, I, I don't, I'm not that interested. I mean, maybe some people think you don't need to explain those things, but I don't. And anybody who's, in, who's, who's gone into psychedelics knows that you got to start to really engage the phenomenology or you're kind of just, you're just picking the easy fruit. And so in a way that, that, 
that Trojan horse isn't even just in the humanities, although it's mostly obviously going to happen in, in that zone. So I, I, I do have faith or you know hope that there's some kind of larger mutation that's happening here that could lead to a more sort of honest way of being in the not knowing about what the hell is going on with reality right. with our consensus reality with media with the planet you know we're so it's so impossible to know to even keep up to be able to speak from that and from a more exploratory experimental phenomenological you know uh, place even as we continue to respect scholarship clarity of discourse concepts Ration, you know, following through reasonable lines of, 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 of logical thought to the degree that they're, they're useful to our particular endeavor. Uh, I think that's a pretty good, good goal to go for and, and potentially actually helpful to people. <laughs> you know, it gets back to the beginning of this conversation. Like, there does seem to be a kind of a weird moment, you know, uh, something of a magical revival going on right now. Uh, although Gary Lockman apparently is um, soon coming out with a book where he's arguing that the presiding spirit of that magical revival is Donald Trump. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> mixed blessing, perhaps. But um, but there is also, I think, in academia, like, it just at the same time as you see something that's, I think, pretty customary in uh, academia, uh, which is a kind of a forced closure of thought or a doubling down on a certain set of assumptions uh, and sticking with those because they make reality more tractable. It makes it easier to, to work with. Uh, ultimately, a kind of substitution for our own tidy conceptual schemes for the messiness of empirical rea uh, reality that William James um, uh, kind of set himself against. Um, you know, that is always going to, that's always going to be a part of academia. But at the same time, uh, and, you know, and, and, and some of the less uh, lovely aspects of, of uh, academic life, um, uh, grand, grandstanding uh, and, uh, um, you know, s s trying to enforce consensus. But at the same time, along with those kind of perennial, I don't know, there's just like perennial issues in academia, I do get the sense that there's a kind of an opening up, like a fresh, like there, there's a draft gone in somehow, like there's a crack from which some kind of fresh air is blowing in. Uh, when I first started thinking seriously about magic, I was like, well, how, how on earth am I going to write about this? How do I find a vocabulary for it or find an idiom for it? Uh, that doesn't rely on a kind of glib historicism, like here's some stupid ideas that dumb people think. Um, <laughs> You know, without falling into that, without sort of deploying a sanitizing historicism on the one hand, uh, and without sort of saying, like, I will now part the veil and, un, uh, you know, reveal the secrets of the universe. Um, you know, finding a middle path where you're just sort of wearing it all lightly, uh, where you're able to engage with ideas without biting down on them necessarily, uh, without biting down on belief, perhaps. Uh, that, to me, is something that... I wouldn't say that there's a... Uh, I, I wouldn't say that there's a groundswell in that direction. 
but I still feel like it, like I said, it's like a draft getting in somehow. I, f I still feel like I can sort of sense that. Um, one thing I want to get back to, if I, if I may, uh, one last uh, thought about Philip K. Dick, since I asked you if he is an intellectual touchstone for you. He's certainly an intellectual touchstone for me. And there's a passage from your technosis that absolutely nails why I actually think that uh, Dick sort of almost defines a kind of an intellectual project or a way of being in the world for a thinking person. Uh, so this is what you said. You said, Philip K. Dick recognized, even in his looniness, that metaphysical certainty is a dire trap. Unlike the whole disturbing march of mystagogues and prophets through the ages, Dick remained ambivalent about his creative cosmologies. And in this ambivalence, he speaks volumes about the nature of religious experience in the age of neurotransmitters and microwave satellites. Dick distrusted reification of any sort and he accordingly refused to solidify his tentative notions into a rigid belief system. Even in his private journals, he constantly liquefied his own revelations, writing with a skeptic's restless awareness of the indeterminacy of speculative thought. In the end, though, 2374 recalls nothing so much as the ontological paradoxes of a Philip K. Dick novel, where the spurious realities that often surround his characters can collapse like cardboard and metaphysical break-ins are generally indistinguishable from psychological breakdowns. I absolutely love that passage. And uh, to me, it nails what it is about Dick, even in all his nuttiness uh, and the passages in the exegesis, which are, uh, frankly, uh, pretty tedious reading. Uh, it's still the fact that his whole thing is, number one, to be willing to entertain any theory, and number two, being willing to destroy any theory. That kind of commitment to cognitive openness or resistance to cognitive closure, to me, is kind of an inspiring thing. That's like a figure from the weird who, to me, actually models an authentic form of like intellectual citizenry. So all of which is to say, I find I, I, I find myself feeling uh, kind of optimistic. Yeah, yeah, that's that's all very very well said, and and you're right. The one the one part of that that passage I would have to rewrite, having now gone through even more of the exegesis than was in that book. So, uh, is that I probably would have to qualify the term skepticism a little bit because that while Dick was willing to be open to any possibility and certainly willing to chuck out what, whichever one he had just come through. It's not <coughs> as much from the, from what I would think of as a skeptical point of view. Uh, Robert Anton Wilson to me is more of a classic skeptic in that sense. Uh, and you know, it, it, it is both <coughs> less and more powerful precisely for that reason as a kind of uh, author or high weirdness intellectual. Um, but, that's just sort of a quibble, really, because I, I, I totally agree with you that that, that model of, of openness is, is inspiring. And I do think that that is a flip side to the chaos that we're in. And when you're asking about, you know, how do you teach this stuff where you how do you find that middle way? You know, in a way, everybody's in this boat now. I mean, everyone, if they're paying attention at all, is, is aware of how fragile their, their own symbol system is and how much of an outside there is to their own ways of thinking and how, much, how, many, how, much, how many gaps are being opened, even as they're being, you know, 
pilloried and, and tr- relentlessly filled with new dogma or new propaganda or whatever you want to think about it, that there's a way that you can speak to the um, insecurity of our, of our moment existentially, epistemologically, ontologically even, that there's, there's some fundamental insecurity that, that, that we're, we're open to, and that these kinds of ideas and ways of being are wonderful ways of navigating that. I mean, it, it, that's what's mm-hmm. so great about this stuff, is that even if it doesn't lead you anywhere, you never open that final door, you remain puzzled, that sense of openness and willingness to engage, despite the fact that it's clearly a little dark, that is kind of disturbing. The weird is not happy. It, it, there's something odd. There's something un, you know, undercutting about it. it it's not going to be a pretty picture, maybe. Probably not. But in a way, that's part of the strength, too, is that I think there's a, almost, it's almost like there's a realism about the surrealism that is in existence and that that gives us room to maneuver. this episode, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>